0: Hi, my name is Luke Schmelzer, and I'm the church planter and one of the elder candidates here at Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church. And we are continuing today our study through the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, which is what we're adopting as the statement of faith, our confession, and standard of belief and practice for our church, our, our church plant. And so we want to do these videos as a series explaining our convictions on faith and practice so that we have a common unity in belief and practice and truth, that we know best how we can relate to one another and honor God in our worship and in our service and in our lives. And so we've gone through a couple of these chapters so far. We've discussed how God has revealed Himself to us through Scripture, how He has revealed who He is as one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, We've discussed his eternal plan over all of his creation and his governance and providence over creation and also how he actually created. He created the world in six days and mankind, male and female, in his own image. He created them just and upright, but they fell into sin. They fell out of right relationship with God by violating his covenant. And so God, by means of covenant, is bringing away for us to come back into right relationship with him. Which brings us to chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. He is the Mediator of God's covenant with humanity. He is the one that makes the way for us to come back into right relationship with God, our creator. And so, if you have a copy of the Baptist Confession with you, you can follow along. I'll read through these chapters, chapter by chapter, and explain the lines as we go. So chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, paragraph 1. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his offspring, and to be by him in time, redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So this begins Christ's role as the mediator of God's covenant, that it pleased God, Father, Son, and Spirit, with their singular united will, to establish a covenant amongst themselves, that as mankind has fallen into sin, it's part of their plan for the world and the universe and history, They have chosen to save humanity, they have chosen individuals, the Father has elected specific individuals to save out of fallen humanity by His good grace. They didn't earn it, they couldn't deserve it in any way, and yet by God's grace, He has chosen a people to redeem back to Himself. The Father has elected and the Son has taken on Himself to atone for their sins, to bring about their salvation and accomplish their redemption. And the Holy Spirit is tasked to apply their redemption to these individuals and to bring them to the last day when they're vindicated, when their salvation is fully and finally complete. So Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, is set apart as the mediator between God and man. Because Christ incarnate, coming in the flesh, takes on a human nature. He is one person, truly God and truly man in such a way that he can be the perfect mediator between God and man. And also that he does this by means of various offices or, uh, or functions. He functions as a prophet and a priest and as a king. He speaks the truth of God in fullest. He atones for the people of God to the fullest. And he rules and defends the people of God to the fullest. He is the head and the savior of the church, the heir of all things the firstborn of all creation, the scripture calls him, the preeminent one. He's the judge of the world. Unto whom the Father did from all eternity give a people to be his offspring, and so that he would, in time, redeem, call, justify, sanctify, and glorify. But the Father has given a people to the Son. You can see various references, like from the book of John, chapter 6, to be saved in time, in the fullness of salvation, redeemed justified, sanctified, glorified. Paragraph two, focusing on the Son and his incarnation. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very an eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of the same substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things that he has made, did, when the fullness of time had come, take upon himself man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, the power of the Most High overshadowing her, so that he was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together, in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, who was of the same nature and substance as the Father and the Spirit, takes to himself a true human nature. When we were preaching through Philippians, remember chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that though he was in the form of God, divine by nature, he takes and assumes the form of a servant to himself, so that he would take all of a human nature with all of its essential properties and common infirmities, everything that it means to be human, and yet without sin. He became human without inheriting the guilt of Adam's first transgression. And this by the miracle of the virgin birth, the Holy Spirit overshadowing the Virgin Mary. And so that he would be uh, of the tribe of Judah, a seed and descendant of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, the perfect Messiah promised from the Old Testament. And that his two whole perfect distinct natures, truly God and truly man, would be joined together in his one divine person without conversion, composition, or confusion. That's very ancient language, safeguarding how we understand the incarnation. It's not that the divine nature changed into a human nature. It's not as if Jesus is part God and part man. It's not as if he's kind of a mix of the two, like a demigod, like Hercules. But he is very God and very man, truly divine, truly human, the one person so that He can be the perfect bridge to re, to reconcile mankind and their Creator. Chapter 3 The Lord Jesus in His human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in Him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all the fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety, which office he uh, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereto called by his Father, who also put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. So this is speaking of not only did Christ, take on a human nature, but he was called by his Father and anointed by the Spirit to perfectly fulfill this task of mediator so that he could be the spotless lamb slain for the sins of the world, that he could be a true and perfect mediator for us, full of grace and truth. Chapter 4. the office, uh, This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake which that he might discharge, he was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, and during most grievous sorrows in his soul, and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified, and died, and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world." If you're following along in real time, you can probably see the similarities between this and the Apostles' Creed that we've been studying on Sundays. This paragraph speaks of the works that he accomplished in his incarnation. We've studied the person of Christ, we see now the work of Christ. That the office of mediator he willingly undertook to accomplish our salvation and to be the perfect mediator he was put under the law of god under the covenant of works in order that he may succeed in fulfilling god's righteous requirements in the way that none of us had none of us could and he underwent the punishment that was due to us for our breaking of god's divine law so not only was he perfectly perfect, that he was sinless in all that he did and didn't do, that he achieved a perfect personal righteousness for himself that he gives to us, but also that he takes our sin and transgression and guilt upon himself so that by his active and passive obedience he may fully atone and cleanse us of all of our sin and give to us a positive righteousness we may be not only forgiven but accepted as righteous in his sight That we may be taken in as his sons and daughters and so he suffered he was crucified he died he was buried but yet on the third day he rose again and in that same physical body and that same body that ascended into heaven and now is sitting at the right hand of the father almighty The place where he waits and continues to intercede and pray for us, his his saints, his elect, until he comes at the end of the age to judge all of creation. Paragraph 5. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procuring reconciliation, purchasing an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the father has given to him jesus says in john 6 i forget the verse but he says that all whom the father has given to me i will raise up on the last day and i will lose none of those that the father has given to me all that the father has elected and given as a people to the son jesus christ by his perfect obedience and spotless sacrifice offered to the Father by the Spirit, has fully satisfied the demands of God's justice. And he has effected an actual reconciliation between God and man, so that while we were once children of wrath at war with our Creator and with creation, we are now at peace, we are reconciled. And he has purchased for us an everlasting inheritance. That Jesus told his disciples he was departing from this earth to go and prepare a place them a place for us if we believe chapter 6 although sorry paragraph 6 it's chapter 8 although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation yet the virtue efficacy and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect of all ages successively from the beginning of the word in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed who would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday and today and forever." So this paragraph is seeking to answer an important question that's been variously debated from different theological camps through the centuries. The question being that if Jesus died at a specific point in history to accomplish salvation some 2,000 years ago for us now, then how is his death powerful and effective to save those who lived and died even before he was crucified? If If he dies around A.D. 30, then what happens to all of those who died before he had purchased their redemption? Well, the confession summarizes the scripture's teaching that that Jesus Christ, though he came in time, though he effected our salvation through his atonement, his righteous life, his substitutionary death, and his glorious resurrection, though he has accomplished those things in time, he himself, as as the divine son, is without of time. He is not bound and limited by time. The grace of God is not limited by time in, in a way that we can conceive of. And so how is it that the Old Testament saints were saved by Christ before Christ came? It's it's been expressed this way, that before Christ, they were saved on credit, and after Christ, they're saved on debit. So to speak, that the people who came before Christ were saved by believing in God's promise to send a deliverer and a Savior, and that all of us who believe in Christ after he has come are saved by believing in that same Christ, now fully revealed to us in history. In the same way that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham, living hundreds of years before Jesus came, it says that he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That Abraham, the father of the faith, the the uh, great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus, by hundreds of years, he believed in God's promises. He believed God and his, his ability to send a redeemer, and God counted this faith to him as righteousness, that Abraham was, was justified by faith apart from works before he was circumcised because he believed in God's promises that he had begin been giving in various ways since the very beginning. Because you go back to Genesis 2 and 3, you see, Adam and Eve fall and are cast out of the garden and put under a curse. But you also see that the serpent who deceived them was also put under a curse. And in Genesis 3:15, which it references here, he is the seed that bruises the serpent's head. God tells the serpent, who is the agent of Satan, uh, that there would be enmity between the seed, the offspring of the woman, and the seed of the serpent, and that he would bruise the seeds heal, and the, and the seed would crush the serpent's head. That this is the first promise of God's covenant of grace, his covenant to save a people for himself. That one day a man, a true human, would come who would effect salvation, who would crush the head of the enemy and deliver our, us, all of, all of God's people, And so they are saved in the old covenant the same in the new covenant by faith not by works and they are saved not because the grace of christ was was actually present in the the offerings and sacrifices of the temple system that that they were actually communicated by uh, the types and shadows of the old covenant but rather that the old covenant saints believed the promise that they saw through the types and shadows to a Redeemer who was to come, and through faith in Christ the Redeemer, they would be saved. That's a much longer discussion. We'll have to elaborate more on another time. But going to paragraph 7, Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both of his natures, each person doing what is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So, What is that getting at? It's saying that Christ, our two-nature Redeemer, Christ who is the Eternal Son, yet incarnate as both truly God and truly man, He acts according to both natures. So that even in His incarnation, by His Spirit, Christ was still omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and yet, in his humanity, Christ was limited and finite and did not have all infinite knowledge and power. He acts according to both of his natures in a way that is ultimately beyond our comprehension, but each nature doing what is proper to itself. And yet, sometimes, because of the unity of Christ's person, sometimes we see in Scripture that the the, the attribute that's proper to the human nature or the divine nature is sometimes attributed to the other in a roundabout way. So to give an example in one of the proof texts it lists is Acts 20, verse 28, who speaks of God who purchased the Christ, who purchased the church, sorry, by his own blood. But we know that properly speaking, God, the divine nature, doesn't have blood, he doesn't have a body, that only Christ incarnate with a human nature has blood. But it attributes that human, that human nature back to the action of the divine person. And so in this, in this language, this roundabout language of the communication of attributes, we see that sometimes Scripture will speak by, uh, by speaking of one with the other because they're united in Christ one person. Again, some of this is, is somewhat difficult to parse out, but it is well worth our study and our consideration and it especially helps us to avoid making mistakes when we read scripture and statements like when Jesus says in the gospels that he doesn't know the day or the hour when he is to return but only the father knows and so we can we can fall into accidents in our in our exegesis and understanding but try and take easy shortcuts to say well Jesus truly didn't know and if if that's the case that he has in some sense, lost his omniscience, his all-knowing attribute of wisdom and knowledge, then he has, in some sense, stopped being divine. And God can't stop being God. As Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we have to understand passages like that according to the two natures of Christ. So that in one sense, Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour because the human nature of Christ doesn't have ultimate and infinite knowledge, but yet still, by his eternal divine nature, he still retains knowledge of all things. Complicated issues, but important for us to consider. Going to paragraph 8, to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manners and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation and all of free and absolute grace without any condition, foreseen in them to procure it. So now considering what Christ has done in coming in the flesh and accomplishing redemption by his perfect life, substitutionary death, and glorious resurrection, it now re- reminds us that Christ actually applies these things effectually, a word, an older word maybe that means effectively, powerfully, that he actually accomplishes what he sets out to do, that for all of those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he will certainly apply and accomplish that redemption to us. So that if God has chosen to save me by his grace, if Christ has died for me, he will not fail to actually apply that salvation to me in time and history. That he will not let me fall from his hands. That by his spirit and by the preaching of the gospel, He unites us to himself. He reveals to us the truths of his word, the mystery of salvation. He persuades us to believe, not by by dragging our rebellious will, but by changing our hearts, by taking out our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh that beats with love for God, by giving us eyes to see and ears to hear what is good and what is true. And he overcomes all of our enemies, by his almighty power and wisdom, in such a way consistent with his wonderful plan, so that Christ as our King, not only does he subdue us to himself as we continue to struggle with the temptations of sin and and the weaknesses of our own flesh and infirmities, but also that he defends us from our enemies, that he rescues us and ransoms us from powers beyond our defense. And all of this... Because of his free and absolute grace, all of unmerited grace, all of, of unconditional grace, that there's nothing in us that God has to look down the corridors of time to see if we were, if we were worthy of it or meritorious of it, or that we would have the, the righteousness and the wisdom to choose this for ourselves, but rather that the, that the redemption and salvation that God has planned and purchased and is applying to us is all of grace. It is all due to him and none to us. To him be the glory and not to us in any way. Paragraph nine. This office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. And this may not be either in part or in whole, transferred from him to any other. Jesus Christ is king of the church, the king of his people, and he will not let any other assuage his authority. He won't let any other step in to his place of rule and reign. So that this is a reminder to us that that no political power or religious authority can ever take the place of head over Christ's church. King Jesus cedes his throne rights to nobody, that he rules and reigns in his church by his word and his spirit, by the conviction of sin and the application of truth. He doesn't do it through other earthly mediaries, that we never have to go to God through popes and councils and religious authorities or kings or presidents or anything like that to get to God. The God in Christ is the only King, Prophet, and Priest of His Church, and that anyone else who claims to be the head of Christ, head of the Church on earth, is supplanting Jesus' rightful authority. Paragraph ten. This number and order of offices is necessary, for in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of His prophetic office. And in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of even the best of our services, we need His priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable to God. And in respect to our averseness and utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need His kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. Praise God for the way that Christ, our perfect mediator, sustains, saves, redeems, and perseveres us to the very end. That our salvation in Christ is a complete salvation. There's nothing that he has or will fail to accomplish for the salvation of his people. And so it speaks again of these, these three offices, these three functions of Christ as our mediator. First, that he is our great prophet because we still remain ignorant in so many ways. That before our conversion and even now after it, there are many things that we are ignorant of and need God's divine instruction in. That we need to be further conformed to the image of Christ, shaped by his word and his spirit. That because of our alienation, because of our hostility towards God and our natural fallen state, and because of our weakness and sinfulness and imperfection of even our best good works, we need Christ as the perfect and great high priest to reconcile us and present us acceptable to God. Hebrews chapter 7 through 10, most of the book of Hebrews pretty much speaks to this that Christ is the great and perfect high priest, that though we were far off and strangers to the commonwealth of Israel, though even our best deeds are as filthy rags before the glory of God, that in Christ we are not only accepted, but we are beloved, that we are cleansed and redeemed and forgiven and sanctified for all of time. And that because of our hostility, because of our spiritual inability to come to God in our own strength, and because of our constant need for rescue, we need Christ the King who comes in and and subdues our rebellion. We need King Jesus to tear down the walls of our disobedience and to bring us into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And that as he brings us in, we need him to deliver us from the attacks and snares of the enemies that still plague us in this world until the day that he returns to put an end to all of sin and sickness and temptation and evil for all of time. That we need him to uphold, subdue, deliver, preserve us unto his heavenly kingdom. And so we praise him for all of his goodness and all of his glory as our perfect two-natured redeemer. That Jesus Christ, the eternal son, as God in the flesh, as he took a human nature to himself without leaving divinity behind, is now a perfect mediator for God's eternal covenant. That he would come and, and bridge the gap between us reconciling us and putting to death the hostility so that we may be reconciled to our god and creator so that in christ we may be forgiven we may be justified and declared righteous in his sight we may be adopted into his eternal family and given in the inheritance of the saints in his eternal kingdom that in christ all of our all of our failures, all of our sins, all of our trespasses have been wiped clean and replaced with a perfect robe of righteousness. And all of this through faith in him, by the glories of the covenant that Christ has fulfilled for us and for our salvation. So thank you for joining us for the study of the London Baptist Confession. Um, you can follow us on social media or come join us on Sundays. Currently we meet in Shorewood at 3 p.m., So reach out and we would love to get in touch.